0: I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Maeve
1: Conran. This is How On Earth, the KGNU Science Show, and today is Tuesday, June 13th,
0: 2017. Coming up, we'll hear about birds and bees and other pollinators and why they matter, ahead of the National Pollinators Week, from scientist Vicky Wojcik
1: of Pollinator Partnership. And then we'll learn about how a northern front range water district manager, Michael Cook, is working to keep lead out of drinking water.
0: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. So it's that time of year when the hillsides and prairies, and our gardens for that matter, are neon green and a brilliant bouquet of flowers, as they well should be, especially from a pollinator's perspective. The birds, bees, butterflies, and beetles and other pollinators rely on the nectar from certain flowering plants, and we humans rely on them. Do you know that roughly one out of every three bites we take comes from food that would not exist if not for pollinators. So the National Pollinator Week is right around the corner, June 19th to 25th. It's meant to celebrate pollinators and spread the word about what we all can do to help protect these critical and fragile creatures. Our guest today is Dr. Vicki Wojcik. She's an environmental scientist and research director at Pollinator Partnership. It's a North American organization that focuses on conservation, scientific research, and education aimed at preserving pollinators. The group is based in San Francisco, but Dr. Wojcik is on the line from her office in Toronto. Vicki, welcome to How on Earth.
2: Oh, thank you very much. Happy to be
0: here. So I'm so struck by this from a food security standpoint that one out of every three bites we take comes from some crop that's dependent on pollinators, right?
2: Yes, that's correct. And it's actually uh, one out of three that's 30%, so you could say it's the minority of our diet, but it's actually the most nutritious and important part of our diet that gives us the vitamins that we need for all of our biological functions. So it's very significant.
0: And just to name a few of, like, the big cash crops, almond included.
2: Yes. So you have things like almonds, all of the stone fruits, so the cherries, um, a lot of apples and pears, oranges, so the things we really love, the really tasty things, and the things that farmers absolutely make a lot of, uh, of their income growing are pollinator-dependent.
0: Yeah, so aside from the ecological significance of these creatures, it's hugely economically important to states, to the nation. Absolutely. Yeah, so give us a sense of um, what is this National Pollinator Week. I know it's not the first year, and you guys at Pollinator Partnership are quite involved.
2: So National Pollinator Week was started about a decade ago as a celebration of pollinators, an awareness campaign. We targeted the third week of June because you have pretty high odds across North America of seeing pollinators. And really the intent was to get everyone out there, the general public primarily, out observing pollinators on plants in our natural landscapes. And since then, it's grown quite a bit. So there's any number of activities going on during Pollinator Week that are garden-oriented, large-scale habitat developments and all of these events, tours of museums, tours of botanical gardens, as well as proclamations from state governors indicating the importance of pollinators to our economies, to our health, and to our ecosystems.
0: And are they, let's say, Colorado? I know you're in Toronto, and it's a national and, for that matter, North American organization. But um, a couple examples of what states, including Colorado, are doing. I know I read recently that Colorado has designated a new so-called pollinator highway. And for those living here, it's along I-76, I I take it, because the South Platte River is so critical to habitat. So what is it, and what does it look like?
2: Well, so pollinator highways, uh, they're wonderful, and often it's the Department of Transportation working with other interested stakeholders, and we've done a lot of support on our end working with other DOTs to get this concept of managing your highway for pollinators. So if you Think about what your highway looks like when you're driving along an interstate. You often have the shoulders mowed down, and it's for safety reasons, but there's quite a bit of maintenance that goes on on our highways. When we make pollinator highways, we're looking at making sure that that maintenance is better for pollinators. So it's adjusting your mowing so that... You allow wildflowers to grow and in some cases it's actually seeding wildflowers mm-hmm. along the highway so you're creating these great stretches of pollinator habitat.
0: And in fact, a lot of them kind of thrive in these disturbance zones, right? Or is it absolutely
2: uh pollinators love what's called early successionary habitat, and that's basically a meadow, and that's what you see along highways, along um, roadsides. When you mow a landscape once or twice a year, you tend to have these uh, this cyclical early habitat that stays rather than transitioning into something more closed, and pollinators love that early habitat
0: and apparently they're not bothered by the noise
2: no and actually uh, they are often not bothered by cars too sometimes there is the concern that if you have pollinators along a highway you might increase their mortality but there's quite a bit of research that shows that of course there are some incidents but the benefits are far greater. You actually have incredible pollinator habitat and more pollinators along highways when they're managed this way.
0: That's interesting. I'm envisioning um, like those wild wildlife corridors where you have underpasses and overpasses along I-70 and elsewhere for crossings. I mean, beetles are one of them. I'm imagining a you know, little beetle crossing along the highway.
2: And it's the same thing. It's a, It's a wildlife crossing for pollinators, just like you would do for larger animals, yes.
0: Interesting. So let's zoom in. I know there are a bunch of them. But what are some of the ones I think people know more about honeybees, but you know maybe honeybees, um, monarch butterflies that are in pretty critical condition? Like how, how critical is it now? And what are some of the key stressors?
2: So I can start speaking about honeybees, and honeybees are a unique pollinator in that we manage them. So beekeepers do a great job in maintaining the health of honeybees. But like any any species, and especially any managed species, they can have diseases and illnesses that you would treat for, and they're impacted by the environment, the landscape they live in. So honeybees definitely suffer from always being placed and doing all the work they do in an agricultural environment which does include the use of pesticides because when you're growing crops you're planting them you are hoping that they grow and that they're pest free but if you do have an incident with pests you're managing for those pests and honeybees are working in the same landscapes that are being treated for pests so that in the end we get pollinated food that we can eat so there's certainly that issue that they come in contact more so than other pollinators directly uh, with pesticides. They and also, um, again, like humans and like all other animals, have their set of diseases and parasites that impact them. And the varroa mite is a specific parasite of honeybees, and it's quite, uh, it debilitates colonies. It basically is, uh, m- makes them less able to function the way they normally would.
0: What what happens to them?
2: So without being too graphic, it's an external parasite that... (laughs) Um, basically, uh, it's like a vampire of sorts. You could say it sucks the fluids, the hemolymph, which is the equivalent of blood in an insect, out of the bee. And a mite, compared to a bee is quite large. So it's not like if you or I would get a tick. It's quite unpleasant, but it's little. A mite is as if we would get a tick the size of a dinner plate. So wow. So it basically eats everything the bee's eating, and you have a weak bee, and that weak bee can't respond as well to other changes in the environment, uh, can't be resistant to other diseases because it's just so compromised. So that's a huge problem. Um, And another one is just basic nutrition. So uh, honeybees like a variety of foods for their diet. They they love everything. So they go to a buffet, they start with one dish and go through every single plant in the landscape. Very often when they're working, pollinating, they're eating one type of plant at a time, and that's not the way that their bodies have evolved. So, again, they're, they're, they're just a little bit sub subprime when it comes to how they're feeling that day.
0: Huh. So their diet is so engineered to be sort of monocrop. Uh, and not when, diverse yes, enough? When,
2: when they're managed in pollination contracts, they're more on a monocrop system, and that's not what they would do if they were in a, a natural landscape. So it's, it's different.
0: Interesting. And I mean, I know there's been a lot of research on a particular class of um, insecticides, the neonicotinoids. Is much yes. being done? I mean, it seems, if anything, USDA has been pretty dismissive about the effects well, of, the of that. Well, there has been quite
2: a bit of research, you, you are right, about the impact that neonicotinoids have on honeybee health, um, in that all pesticides have the potential to be harmful to, to bees, bees being an insect. But with neonicotinoids, they actually are, in fact, um, in a direct contact scenario, much more harmful, so much more toxic.
0: Yeah, and... So I want to get, we got a little bit of time left, um, a little beyond the uh, politics and sort of the legislation to look at what are some of the things that your organization and others are doing, including here in Colorado, that individuals can get involved with. Here it is. Oh, great. Know, plant yeah, growing no, absolutely. Season.
3: Well,
2: so it is pollinator season, so it's growing season. And one of the primary things we tell anyone that they can do to help pollinators is to plant habitat. So if we're talking about honeybees, if we're talking about native bees, butterflies, even bats, depending on where you live, habitat loss is the number one driver of pollinator decline. So if you can help Make your your garden a pollinator garden, and we speak the same way to municipalities that might have jurisdiction over all of the municipal parks. Or similarly, the way the highway um, Highway seventy six in Colorado was declared the pollinator highway. Create that habitat. That's the number one thing you can actually do. If you're not in the situation where you can create habitat. You can do other things that support pollinators, such as voting with your wallet when you go to the store. And uh, if you know your farmer, if you know your beekeeper, make those food selections that are local and sustainable. Or uh, you can also vote actively if there's any public policy that might be uh, progressive for pollinators. We find it's actually a very bipartisan issue. Pollinators (laughs) tend to um, really get everyone concerned about how to help agriculture ecosystems. So... If you have a chance to cast a ballot for someone that has a, a pro-pollinator platform, we certainly encourage that.
0: I can just envision the monarch butterflies coming to Capitol Hill and just you know, letting the bipartisanship vanish, at least, for a <laughs> while. Um, and it seems like the urban habitat, like you mentioned, gardens have been minimized as also a significant part of the overall habitat of so many creatures. So it really is... Significant to have people, however large or small the garden is, aside from obviously the highway strips well, and larger municipal areas, right?
2: You are correct. And we often say that small steps add up to large change. So if you only have a tiny patch or even a window box, and that's the only place that you can plant for pollinators you should still plant for pollinators, because if everyone does that same small action, we've actually created an enormous amount of habitat. So don't hold back, even if your site is small.
0: Well, thank you. And um, we will post on the HowOnEarth.org website some of the resources for people here in Colorado. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh,
2: you're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: That was Vicki Wojcik, Research Director at Pollinator Partnership. For more info, you can get involved in uh, National Pollinator Week activities. And to find out more about various pollinators, go to pollinator.org. And as I said, we'll also post more on our website, howonearthradio.org.
4: If I was a flower
2: growing wild and free, all I'd want is you to be my sweet honeybee. And if I was a tree growing tall and green, all I'd want is you to shade me and be my leaves.
1: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Two years ago, Flint, Michigan turned the issue of lead in drinking water from a little-known or distant past hazard into a national scandal. Human error and outright cover-ups resulted in many Flint homes showing staggeringly high levels of lead in their drinking water. It's worth noting that the problem didn't start with lead contamination at Flint's water filtration centres. That water is basically clear of lead. Rather, the problem happened because the treated water from the Flint River flowing into people's homes was unusually corrosive and many service lines to homes leached lead. These hazards in Flint are not uncommon throughout the US. That's why water districts are required to monitor a sampling of homes in their districts for lead in drinking water. Here in Colorado, higher risk homes tend to be those built before the 1950s and also homes built in the 1980s when a type of plumbing called solder was popular at the time and it turned out to easily dissolve out lead if the drinking water promoted it dissolving. It's the job of water districts to use soda ash and other chemicals to keep their water from being overly corrosive to this kind of plumbing. Still, occasionally samples from water districts show higher levels than what state health departments considers safe. How on Earth's Shelley Schlender recently spoke with Michael Cook, an expert at the Carter Lake Water Filtration Plant near Loveland, which recently was out of compliance about what the district has done. That plant serves parts of northern Boulder County. Boulder has its own water filtration plant and has not been out of compliance, at least in recent years. But all water districts must address similar concerns. Here's Shelley's interview with Mr Cook.
4: Michael Cook, District Manager... Little Thompson Water District. We're a domestic water provider in the North Front Range of Colorado. We provide service to about 300 square miles in parts of Boulder, Larimer, and Weld County. When we had an exceedance of the recommended levels for lead in the water, we had to do several things. We had to begin a process of notification and education for our customers and so we gave everyone notice put it in the press, put it in the papers, send everyone a newsletter, send them a letter.
3: Is this like telling people, is this embarrassing to do?
4: Absolutely. We don't want to do that. We want to be successful. The, the key thing is it's, it's an advisory notice. We didn't violate any regulations. We didn't get a, a bad boy sticker, but it's a health advisory. And our role is to provide education for the customers and then to take action and the action we took was to modify how we do the water treatment and they typically call that a corrosion control plan and we worked to make our water less corrosive and so we began that in 2015 in September in December of 2015 we sampled again and we were in compliance hurrah all good now June 2016 sampled again oh not quite in compliance so, we sample again, we send out another notice, another round of education information. We get to December of 2016, hurrah, we're in compliance, everything's good. We think our corrosion control changes and things that we've done have helped a lot. We see a big change in the water chemistry and the lead and copper samples we get out in the field. And we'll be sampling again in June of 2017.
3: So, you're sampling every six months every right Every six months. Did Flint affect this i mean you started sampling and you found a problem before flint was on everybody's radar
4: we've been doing lead and copper sampling every three years forever that's what we do the requirements for i think annual testing and then if you're if you don't detect any then you can move to it every three years and that's where we were probably because of flint that's going away they'll probably make us sample more frequently than every three years
3: you okay about that
4: it's expensive and it's a very big imposition on the customers because the samples are taken at someone's house first thing in the morning what they call that first draw on the faucet and so we drop off a sample bottle and the customer puts that sample bottle under the faucet while they're still standing there in their bathrobe and fuzzy slippers before they make coffee they've got to take a water sample the first water out of the faucet it's an inconvenience we have to take the sample bottles to them they have to get up in the morning and do it We have to go pick them back up, take them in for testing.
3: Do customers say, yay, you have picked me for doing a sample, or do they say, oh, no? Almost
4: never. They say, really, do you have to bother us again? And now the health department says you have to do it every six months. They say, we have to do this again? Didn't we just do this? We say, yes, but we have to do it every six months. Many times they say, we're not going to do it anymore we say, okay, thank you very much for your help, and we have to go find some other site to sample.
3: You're sampling, what, 16 houses every six months?
4: I think it's about 60 now. 60. 60. Six 0 yeah, every six months. And it isn't just the cost of having the sample analyzed, which is expensive enough, but it's all the time and effort to coordinate, find all those people, educate them on how to do the samples, take the bottle to them, pick it up, take it around. It's... Just about a full time body to take care of that stuff for us.
3: So, one person for a month is just doing sampling?
4: Pretty much, no. to coordinate all that. And we only have 25 employees now, so it's a pretty big load. Once every three years wasn't so bad, every six months, and four times as many samples, pretty tough.
3: How do you kind of, as detectives, what do you think happened? in 2015 to raise the number of of out-of-compliance samples you got.
4: Changes in our water chemistry, changes in our process, chemicals we used or didn't use as much of, and so we had to change that and modify it. We make changes in our water and chemistry all the time as we go through, and over that course of time we made some changes and some things needed to be tweaked a little more. That's why we test it periodically.
3: You know, it seems like in Flint, they avoided being out of compliance by throwing out a couple of samples. But you're explaining to me why someone would be tempted. Because it's not just a matter of the embarrassment. It changes a group from a low amount of surveillance to a lot. And that's just hard on a budget. But boy, did they have a lot of people they contaminated with lead as a result of looking the other way. Are you... You mean, it's embarrassing, but are you glad when you catch this stuff?
4: Well, we need to take care of it. I mean, our role is to provide the best quality water we can and meet all of the requirements for water quality from the EPA and the health department. And that's our job. So we find that there's an issue. And again, we're not in violation. It's an advisory capacity, education, and an action for us to adjust the corrosivity of our water and to do that.
3: Okay, so it wasn't that you were testing new houses, and the houses that you were testing just had older or more corrosive pipes, it was really that the water changed, and whether it was the water coming into the plant changed, some chemistry because of how much runoff we had, Mm -hmm. or something about how you had readjusted the chemicals, just something in that whole mix wasn't quite exactly right for the pipes in our area.
4: Yeah, I think that changes over time. I mean, we monitor that all the time and look at that, and it's just a matter of, having the right changes in there at the right time. They're, they're very small incremental changes. In the past, we did our lead and copper testing every three years on the schedule. We didn't do any interim testing in between that. That's what we did. That's what we were required to do to be in compliance. And so at the end of three years, all of a sudden, whoa, something's changed a little bit. So that's when we go and take a look at it and modify it and make changes and adjust it.
3: Have EPA rules become more strict about how much lead is allowed in drinking water heading into someone's home?
4: Well, again, there's no lead in the water coming into the home. It all comes from the pipes that are there at the home. But EPA is talking about all kinds of changes. What are you anticipating? We're probably going to be testing the water every six months.
1: That was Michael Koch, district manager of the Little Thompson Water District. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for that report.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is yours truly, Susan Moran, who also produced today's show. My co-host, Maeve Conran, engineered the show. Additional contributions from Shelley Schlender.
1: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional
0: music from Barry Louis-Polisar. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For KGNU Science Show, How on Earth, I'm Maeve Conran. And I'm Susan Moran.